When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 621. This week, uh, lots, lots of Nerds Podcasts. There are some podcasts. Well, it's the new year. Like we, yeah. We're back on it. Yeah. We're back into it. We're back into my schedule. At midnight's on at 11.30. Talking Dead's going to be on at a time that it's not normally on. When right. come back in February that was, That's really been throwing me off. It, a lot of people, because basically what AMC is doing is they're going to put Better Call Saul after Walking Dead, but just on February 8th. Yeah. And then Talking Dead will be on after Saul. Um, I, for one, am very excited Can to see Can we do Saul. an after show where we talk about Better Call Saul, too? Uh, do you want, like, a Talking Saul? Yeah, or really. Better Chat Saul? Or That'd be good. Better Call Hardwick? It makes me think of all those talking whatever. bad times. I know. It was such, such innocent times so long ago. But then Saul will be on Monday nights from then on, and Talking Dead will return to its normal time the week after. So uh, I have to think of it as, so, as reascending to the rightful throne. <laughs> if people are like, they canceled Talking Dead, I'm like, eh. No. <laughs> it's doing pretty well. <laughs> not going anywhere. Maybe push one more scroll down on your TV guide and see what comes on right after. It's a talking dead. It's, everything's going to be fine. Maybe continue checking before taking to Twitter. I uh, have been trying to just get my brain back into my normal schedule mode. It's weird, right? It is weird after taking a break for a couple weeks. Did you take a break? No, I was working most You were of working it. the whole time? Not all of it. I think I had like four days fully off. Did I somehow crack the whip and you had to work? No, I mean, other shows were going up too. Yeah. And no, but that's what I mean. Like, there's still like shows yeah, on Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take a vacation soon. Don't Are worry. you podcast moonlighting? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll take a vacation she soon. Didn't though, no, she didn't say no. She didn't say no. She just she very visibly to, did not oh, say no. We have 30 shows on our network. No, I call okay, okay, okay. I just make sure. <laughs> All the time, this lady. I want to make sure. Did you guys, did you and Anthony do anything for the. We went up north. Mm-hmm. To the Arctic Circle or Alaska? Yeah, we went to the, no, we went to San Francisco. It was fun. Ooh. Katie hates talking about herself. She really does. Not. It's fun. I Do just you? said we go. We, okay, we went up to Marin. That's where I'm from, Marin County. Oh, Marin County. We went County. hiking yeah. and we saw my little nephew. Nice. And did Scout go? Scout went. We drove up with Scout. Nice. And she liked it up there a lot. Boring. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what if I like? I encourage you to talk, and then I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, don't talk anymore. This episode I'm very excited about because uh, this is a dear, dear, dear friend of mine who I've known since the early 90s, Andrea Romano. And Andrea Romano is relevant to your interest because she is essentially responsible for every cartoon that you enjoyed from like 1989 to current 
um, she probably cast. Now, like Chris. she was responsible for. She helped yeah. build Warner Brothers Animation Studio, uh, like the this, this, this uh, the next incarnation of it, not the old days. The Batman one, the Batman one. Kevin Conroy, she cast Kevin Conroy as Batman. Like all of Animaniacs, like she's responsible Pinky for picking the, the brain. She's responsible yeah. for all of that, and I've worked for her a bunch. She's such a wonderful, interesting person, and so warm, and I think has had such a cultural impact on. Uh, you know, people of a certain age range and demographic that um, that I really I, I I saw her at New York Comic Con a couple months ago. I was like, "Will you please come on the podcast?" And she said, "Absolutely," and was and did not disappoint. Voiceover people always do great on They're the, the best podcast, people. and she is sort of the godmother of voiceover. She had the greatest stories. Yeah, she's oh my incredible. So we're gonna shut up, and so you can listen to those incredible stories right now. Uh, for the Nurse Podcast, uh, number 621. Now entering Nerdist.com. talking about the cold recording studios in the city. And no matter how hot it is outside, that means it's just colder. Yes, this outside. one is one of them. Yes, we heated it up nicely for you, though. This, this room is It was ice, cold. ice, ice cold. Ice cold. It was really, really cold. All right, we've already started recording. Yeah. <laughs> That's just how we just get into it. <clears throat> okay. I'm so excited to have... I mean, this is really... I think people are going to be very interested... To hear your story. I hope so. Well, people, you have affected many people. Uh, Whether or not they know your name, I I know they've seen your name in a lot of credits uh, for things. But uh, what is your specific title now? Uh, Typically, voice director. Mm -hmm. Um, I do a lot of casting still. So it's casting and voice director on some instances. But when I work for Nickelodeon, they have such a brilliant casting department. I don't have to cast for them, so I'm yeah. strictly a voice director yeah. there. But that's my title, voice director. So are you? Do you are you are you not specifically with Warner Brothers anymore? No, I, I've I haven't been uh, on staff anywhere since I left Hanna Barbera in 1989. Okay, good. So I'm freelance for the last however many years that is 25. But just so just so people know, I mean that. The sort of the second golden age of Warner Brothers animation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The first being like mid 30s to mid 50s. Yep. The second being like late 80s through the 90s. Right. You were responsible for casting all of that. It's true. Animaniacs, Pinky in the Brain, it's all true. the Batman series, mm-hmm. like everything. That's that was you. I did. I, I started with the company when we a, a handful of us from. Hanna-Barbera broke off and formed Warner Brothers TV Animation, which didn't even exist. And that was in 1989. And we started with Tiny Toons, which got a little bit of success because there was a producer named Steven Spielberg. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of of his work. He's had some success, I hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then we did Animaniacs, and then the spinoff of that, Pinky and the Brain. Pinky and the Brain, yeah. And then Batman animated series, and then Justice League, and then it just really began to open up. And many, many of the series, most of the series I worked on, I had um, I had Maurice Lamarche and Rob Paulson on. How great! I bet that was a fun time. It was amazing. But people, that pod, the podcast went up a couple of years ago at this point. But I got emails from people who like didn't expect to burst into tears when Rob. <laughs> I was like, "Do you still remember the Country of the World song?" And he went through it. He knows it still by heart. And it it flipped people's 
brains Can out. Can I tell you that in that recording session, he actually nailed it on the first take. Are you serious? And he asked for a second one. I said, sure, you can have a second one. And we did a second one, but I think we used the first one. Yeah. Rob Paulson is... Stunning. He's stunning. And he's one of those guys... Like, his voice is sort of a mid to higher register, but he can get super high. And he can... I mean, it's... I did, I never really understood the the ma- until I started working in it. Like, oh, there are guys who can g- go different registers and be hyper articulate. Like, you can still he understand what they're saying in those in those registers. There's a handful of people that are stunningly good at and that. And some of them, like some guys, you are, you can't pick out who they are because they can, you know, like D. Bradley Baker and uh, and Jeff um, Bennett, Jeff Bennett, yep. and. Uh, and it, like you can't, you can't pick them out because it, they're able to. They're really able to manipulate their voices. And I've been working with so many of them for so many years, some of them decades. And I always think, oh, I, I pretty much know all the voices they can do. I'll be able to recognize it. And then they'll come up with a brand new voice I've never heard before and just blow my mind and just go, I, D, I never heard you do that before. Or Frank Welker, I've never heard you do that before. I've known you for 30 years. I've never heard that voice come out of you before. Stunning. I love that you said that hearing Pinky's voice made somebody tears come to their eyes. Yeah. When I was first working at Hanna-Barbera, we're talking 1984, um, and I first met Dawes Butler, who was the voice of so many classic characters, but my personal favorite was Huckleberry Hound. Mm-hmm. And I said that to him upon first meeting, and he spoke to me as Huckleberry Hound, and I burst into tears. I just lost it. I just wept because I was suddenly transported in time back to being in feety pajamas in front of the TV with a bowl of cereal just listening to Huckleberry Hound. And I know why I love that series so much. Do you remember that series, Huckleberry Of course. Because Huckleberry Hound broke the fourth wall. He looked to camera, and I thought for sure he was looking right through the TV and saw me. Yeah. And so he was my pal. And yeah. so that's why that series meant so much to me. And so when I met him, I just wept. I cried. Yeah, he would. He did. I didn't, I didn't really... I didn't really... Yes, that's exactly... This old boy, I don't know what kind of... Exactly. Like, he would look and talk to the... That's right. So you were always a big animation cartoon I fanatic. I loved cartoons. And, and the weirdest thing, and I know some other people for whom this is a problem, if they can't see the title of the episode, the episode is ruined. And that's how I was as a kid. If I missed the opening credits and missed the title <laughs> of the episode, the whole cartoon was ruined for me. I had to wait till it came back around again. However, many years later it would be that I'd see it and find that's the title. Re- that's really I love, funny. And I still love... The titles of episodes. When I get a script and I'm ready to prep it, I, I love seeing what the title, what clever name they've come up. And a lot of the series are using one-word titles now. They're not using full, long, five-word titles. It's all, you know, um, uh, like uh, sh- Sphinx. That'll mm-hmm. be the name of the episode. Sphinx, they'll be about. Or, you know, Twins. Be, they won't use big, long titles. And I love the longer titles that really twist, the SpongeBob titles that have some idea of what's going on. Well, they uh, just... As, before cartoons made the transition to being television shows, mm-hmm. they really were films. They were short they were. films. They, they were. would show them before movies. Not really intended for kids, really just intended for all audiences. Well, the better ones were intended for both. Right. Like the classic Bugs Bunny mm-hmm. cartoons, the Jay Ward cartoons, which yeah. is the Rocky and Bullwinkle. Of course, yeah. I know when I was a kid, I didn't understand half those jokes, but I loved it. Now as an adult, I, I recognize those jokes for the older audience, and I go, oh, that's hilarious. So that's very smart of them to have. Those are the long living cartoons, the ones that have something for kids. For both. Yeah. So like SpongeBob, where parents can sit down with their kids and watch a cartoon together and go, that's great. They both get something. And stoners can be like, fuck. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) But but there's also, uh, 
um, uh, the idea that um, I didn't get a lot of the cultural references in Bugs Bunny. Right. Like, and there are some that I didn't even realize were references to things. And then you start to get older and you watch more movies and you're like, oh, oh, he's doing – oh, he's, right. he's making fun of that guy. Right. Or, oh, or, that's Edward G. Robinson. Exactly. Or this, yeah. exactly. And you didn't know who Edward G. Robinson was until you saw it much later. But you remember Bugs Bunny doing an impression of it or somebody else in the cartoon being those classic old actors, whether it was Edward G. Robinson or John Wayne or whoever it was. And you know, way back then, none of those actors did – Voices. It was not a time of celebrities doing voices. The only celebrities that did cartoons in the way back when were, as, as far as I know, Tony Curtis, who played Stony Curtis. Stony Curtis yes, on the Flintstones, yes. Remembering that, and Anne Margrock. And yes, the Flintstones. The two, that's right. The two actors that I know did c- cartoons way back when, way before it was the cool thing to do. Now, I have agents calling me all the time saying, my wonderful celebrity so-and-so wants to do this cartoon because it's something their kids can watch. They can't watch a lot of their on-camera series that they do because they're bloody or violent or clearly made for an adult audience. (laughs) But if they come home and say, I'm going to be in a Batman episode, they're the hero of the household. Also, it's uh, you can look like shit and go to work. That's the best. No memorizing, no wardrobe, no makeup. You can read right off the page. If your voice is warmed up, you can do it. Yeah. And and also, I, I just... I've said this many times before, but I hope that people realize that good voiceover actors are some, among some of the best performers in the business because they don't have the luxury of being able to use their body That's to right. convey an idea. Like they have to. I mean, something. You know, a lot of things are brought to life when the when they're drawn. Right. But ultimately, they have to convey their performance with just their vocal performance. Well, the animators do those wonderful drawings based on the vocal performance. So whatever we give them as a vocal track gives, makes, the, makes the cartoon. It really yeah. does. Because that's the first thing is, you know, the first thing we do. We record the voices. And if it's kind of a flat read, the animation's going to come out kind of flat. If it's a really big, wonderful, excited, great read, then it's going to have better animation. And as I've said a million times, it's all about the acting. It doesn't matter if you can do a thousand voices. If you can't act, you're probably fun at a party, but <laughs> whether or not you could actually have a career doing voiceover, I, I don't know. Did you have you ever worked with like June Foray, or did you ever? I was her agent for a thousand years. What? Yes, I, I started as an agent. I, I was an actress first, and then I was an agent at Abrams Rubeloff. So in 1979, 1980, I was June Foray's agent. I was um, Paul Winchell's agent. Oh my I was God. Frank Welker's agent. Abrams Rubeloff was one of the largest talent agencies and one of the biggest suppliers of talent for animation in the industry. Mm -hmm. And I was there for three and a half, four years, and then went off to a much smaller boutique agency, Special Artists, and started their voiceover department. And I was trying to remember when you and I first met and started working together, was I ever your agent? Mm -mm. No, but you... I don't remember who introduced me to you, but I know that I was in college when I first met you. It was early 90s. I don't think you even had an agent yet, because I remember contacting you directly and saying, can you do an audition for me and come in? But I don't remember who can... I honestly can't remember... Who turned us on to each other. Who connected us. I really wish I could remember who it was. Was it like... Did you know Peter Scolari? Was I it did. Peter? I did. Might have been Peter. I did. Could have been. Because I knew him. I worked at a golf course and he used to play there all the time and we became <laughs> friends and he taught me how to juggle and he might have he might have connected me to you but I I must have been like 92 like or yeah, something. Yeah. And um and I remember cuz I was taking some animation classes at UCLA. I took the animation track there. Cool. And so I had uh cuz I I was always 
Aside from stand-up comedy, one of the other things that I was a huge, huge dork about was was animation. Mm-hmm. Like I, everything. Yeah. Everything's just like. Oh, what were you watching? Good. Do you remember at the time? Uh, what were my favorites? Yeah, yeah. Um, my my favorites were. Um, I mean, I always thought Bob Clampett had the weirdest cartoons, Maybe. like the weirdest, like '30s, most drug-induced yes. kind of strange. Uh huh. Um, I I thought his drawings, st- like I liked his drawing style, but it wasn't. It was. Some of it was a little too fluid for me, mm-hmm. but when uh, when Chuck Jones really hit his sweet spot, where you'd see like Bugs Bunny rub his head, and you could see like that the the rabbit had a skeleton, like a skull right. underneath. The skin would move. The skin would move. Um, I think some of my favorites were. Uh, I loved the Three Bears, like his interpretation oh, yeah. of the Three Bears. Uh-huh. Because they were so fucked up and violent and dark, <laughs> and the father was just this rage machine, like essentially like alcoholic, and the mother was super sweet, sweet, su- sweet. super sweet, like the peacekeeper and uh-huh. the big stupid son, right. and like I loved, you know, I, I th- those those, those were some were of my great favorites. Style. Great I think style. my, but and then of course, uh, you know, I I loved Jay Ward. I like, I thought. Chuck's style, uh, Chuck's style changed a bit when he started doing Tom and Jerry. Yeah, still, I, it was still, but it was that cheaper television animation right. where they were not doing like it went from twenty four frames per to second like to six 10, or 10, eight or ten or 10. something. Hanna Barbera made that the the way that it all went, and they made cartoons for a quarter of the price that what they used to be. Made of course, before. yeah. And so yes, that's absolutely true. The repeating a, backgrounds, but, you, you right? Know, I love them though. For some reason, there's a comfort I take from that. When Yogi Bear would run and he'd run past the very same tree over and over and over, over, and over again. again, or Huckleberry Howe would run past the same vase and table over and over and over. But the, again. you know those old those old Warner like the like the original Warner Brothers cartoons when Chuck was there, and I mean, you had like um, Carl Stalling doing like this mat. This master conductor. You had Phil DeGard, who was doing these incredible, like, these gorgeous background gorgeous. paintings. Like, there was so much. And then Mel Blanc, and then June Foray, if people didn't know, she did all the female voices That's or, right. like, kid voices. That's right. And, um, and, and, so, and up until maybe a year ago was still working. Really? At 95 years old. Oh, my God. I know. Still working. What a great career. That really... I mean, and there was a point when Mel Blanc had been in a car accident. This is a thousand years ago. And they literally recorded him from his hospital bed. And I thought, what a career that you can actually, as long as you can still vocalize, you can still work. So one of my favorite casting things I ever did was back in the middle, mid-80s, um, they decided to Hanna-Barbera to make some more episodes of The Jetsons, which mm-hmm. had been out of production for over 20 years. And Gordon Hunt, who was the director at the time, came to me and said, we have to cast this again. I said, let's try to get the original actors. Let's see if we can go back and find them all and if they want to come do this. And so I found each and every one of them, including George O'Hanlon, who was the voice of George Jetson. He had had a stroke several years prior and could no longer see. But we would send him the script ahead of time. His wife would read him the whole story. They would record it on cassette, her reading the story, driving in from Westlake Village to the middle of um, Coingo West, where yeah. Barbera used to be. It's an apartment building now. That's right. Um, they would drive there, and she would play him the tape so he could remember the story. Gordon would sit in the studio with George. I would sit in the booth and listen for any noise, and Gordon would feed him his lines, and he would repeat them back. Oh, my and God. And so this man who was really just sitting and vegetating had this whole other life after his stroke where he could actually work. And it made me so happy. I am convinced we extended his life. 
He actually did. Here's a bizarre story for you. He actually died in front of me in a recording session. Oh, my God. Let me go that way. Let me go working, doing what I love. He had not been feeling well. He was recording exactly the way I was describing. Gordon was sitting next to him. I was in the booth listening to make sure there wasn't any noise. He didn't look well. He wasn't feeling well. He said, I... Uh, Gordon said, you know what, George, let's just do this when you're feeling better. His wife, Nancy, came in and she was lovely. And I watched as his head pitched forward into her chest. And I saw this look pass between Gordon and Nancy. And I thought, this is it. And we called the paramedics. They were there in two minutes flat, put him on life support, stuck him in the hospital really close. St. Joseph's was right around the corner. I followed them in the car. I, so the doctor came out and said, he's, he's gone. We've got him on life support, but he's really gone. And his wife totally had her spiritual shit together. She just said, let him go. We discussed this. We know he's gone. But I'm telling you, we extended the man's life for years. How old was he? Only about 87, 88 years old when he died. But he had had the first stroke when he was about 80. Okay. So he was just sitting at home doing nothing. And then this whole thing. And then we brought back Penny Singleton and Doss Butler, who had been a teacher as well. And so Doss was teaching Penny Singleton, who played Jane Jetson, teaching her how to speak to deal with her dentures. Because at that point, she had dentures. And so he was trying to teach her how to work around them so we wouldn't get the denture click. And the slippage and all that kind of stuff. And so we got George O'Hanlon and, um, and Janet Waldo, who still to this day sounds like um, Judy Jetson. She still sounds like her today. She can still do the voice of Judy Jetson. And all these wonderful actors we brought together and did 41 more episodes of the Jetsons 20-some-odd years after the original series. So did you – So okay, so you were, you were at uh, Special Artists and then – you to, and then you decided to break off. And- Great story there. I was um, at uh, Special Artists and would have constant conversations with Ginny McSwain, who was the casting director at Hanna-Barbera. And she was so kind to me and always let, saw new people and explored new clients of mine. And she called me one day and said, Andrea, I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to move over to Marvel. And this was a time when the cartoon explosion was going on. People were making 65 episodes of shows like Muppet Babies and all these huge shows. And she said, I'm going to go direct, which is a normal progression to go to, from casting director to director. And she said, um, I said, who's going to replace you because you've been so good to me? I, I hope somebody will let me. And she said, well, we don't know yet. And she called me the next day and said, Andrea, are you interested at all in coming over? <laughs> and in typical cartoon fashion, the phone was like spinning in the air as I left my <laughs> office and went over and was sitting in front of Gordon Hunt at Hanna-Barbera saying, please, 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 how do I get this why job? Did you want to do, why did you want to do casting? Instead well, of I loved cartoons. Love, love, love cartoons. I don't know if someone had offered me a job in casting commercials if I would have made the change, but to work in cartoons, it seemed like a very natural progression. When you're a... a, a an agent nowadays, and back then even, you did auditions at your office. Clients came into you, you did auditions there. So I was doing quite a bit of directing voices and, and essentially casting because you look at your client list and you say, okay, here's the breakdown. They're looking for actresses sounding between the ages of 18 and 27, and they need to sound blonde and sweet and cute and blah, blah, blah. And then you look at your client list and you say, okay, these are the five actresses that I should bring in for that. So that really is casting. Mm-hmm. So it was natural to go into casting from there. And I loved it. I loved I loved finding new talent. I loved bringing in people. And and as I said, at this time, the animation industry was exploding. Everybody was making enormous numbers of cartoons. We were doing 10, 12 series at a time at Hanna-Barbera. So I was chewing through actors at a ridiculous pace. I was just bringing in new people, new people. I would do what doesn't get done anymore, which is called general auditions, where you call up an agent and say, send me five people you want me to know. 
and tell them to prepare five minutes of material. And they come in, they do five minutes, and you give them cold readings for a couple of pieces of copy, and you get to meet lots of new talent. It's not done anymore, unfortunately. I miss that. It's expensive. You can't do it anymore. Studios charge you a lot. Um, but I love doing that. I love, And I still love finding new talent, finding people like Greg Sipes and saying, he's the guy. He's the guy. I'm telling you. I know you've never heard of him before. Give him a chance. He's going to be a a big voiceover actor, and here he is doing tons of series now. And I've worked like with that. you. I've worked with you quite a few times. You made me Green Arrow. I love that. Which uh, was so much fun. I got to do like three or four episodes of that, and then I showed up, kind of going like, "This is, this is great. We're gonna. I can't. I get to be Green Arrow." And and then you came out, and you were like, "So this is going to be the last episode in this series." <laughs> it was the the Batman, right? Right. The Batman was. Called, and right. so we. We all recorded as a because Robert Patrick was just on the right. podcast not that long ago. Oh, cool! Robert Patrick and and a bunch of other really amazing people, and we recorded as a group. Yeah, which is that's the way I like. Ser- it's fairly rare. That's how we did. But I think you might have done the Barnyard first episode of Barnyard. Too. I could have. I could have when I did back in the Barnyard. I think yeah, you did yeah. the first episode too, and that we did as a group. Right. And now the stuff that I've worked on since then, it's all scheduling's weird, and it's all that's just, why. Like, Isolated. It, 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 it's it's a beautiful industry because it allows for that. It allows to be able to pick up an actor all by themselves if it has to happen. I far prefer, and I'm sure you do too, as an actor, ensemble records where oh, you yeah. get to react. You can play that's off such everyone. a big part of acting, and or then, just imp- improvise. I was going to say that's where the ad libs come in, and suddenly things get put in that weren't in the original script because people had a great idea. That's why we hire actors and not technicians to do voices because they have ideas. And I always talk about casting a show as in casting a party. I want to bring in people who are going to have fun together, who are going to bring something to the party, who are going to add and have a good time. Because we're going to be stuck in a room together for four hours. I want it to be people that are really fun and have a good time together. I think one of one of the I've gotten to do a lot of really cool things, but one thing that that was on my definitely on my bucket list was I did a couple episodes of the new Scooby Doo, uh-huh. and I got to do, say that. Oh. Cool. If it hadn't been for you meddling kids, oh how lovely. And that was a huge. That's a good one. This is the, yeah, this was the one with uh, with Mindy Cohn. Yeah, and, uh, I did a bunch of those. Yeah. yeah, I did a bunch of the movies, the the director video. Oh, you movies. did. I did a bunch of those. Super fun. Yeah. And Matt um, uh, Matt Lillard and Matt Lillard, who's so nice, isn't he? Really cool. I'm very happy for his success too. All the wonderful things he's done. Um, the Descendants that yes. he did. Yes. And, Something else after that that was remarkable. Welker's yeah. still, he was still doing it when I was there. He was still doing He's Freddy. He's been Freddy for 40 years. Yeah. It's like the longest running cartoon series, consistently running. And I was casting that in 1984 when yeah. I was at Hanna-Barbera. There was, uh, yeah, so you mentioned, so in the 80s, there was that, that explosion of after school and Saturday morning cartoons, which... That's where you know. That's where Transformers and GI Joe, and then like you said, Muppet Babies and all those shows. And, and Hanna Barbera did so many of the baby things: Popeye and Son, Pink Panther and Son, all the younger generation things. And and again, they were ordering sixty five episodes of things, which was unheard of. Yeah. To have you know, it would have been thirteen, thirteen, thirteen. If you were lucky, you did thirteen, and then maybe thirteen more. These shows, like Animaniacs, all those shows, started with sixty five episodes. Yeah, because that's uh, a- Ducktales. I did for Disney, and yeah. that was sixty five episodes. Sixty-five episodes is basically um, six months of programming. Right. If, if it's a strip, if it's a Correct. daily show, Correct. then uh, yeah, what a sweet gig. Oh, oh, you know, literally, our head of di- the divi- 
decision would say, okay, we're going to make 65 episodes of Pinky and the Brain. You can go ahead and buy that new car you were going to buy because we're going to be in production for a good three years to make 65 episodes. And it was glorious. Now, what's happening now is that there's a lot of Netflix series and Amazon Prime is doing some series and stuff. And they are doing 78 episode buys, which is terrific. It's really great. There's a strange residual situation there because there aren't any. But still, if you know you're going in to do 78 episodes, that's a long run. That's going to take a couple of years to get that done. That's a nice steady gig. Yeah, and those and the the voiceover actors really do rely on the residuals to come back around, you know, because Absolutely. you don't um you know, there's just uh, there's just not a lot of upfront money in voiceover. No. Like you might get scale or scale plus, you know, scale scale and a half or something. Right. And uh so it, it's very important, and, and when you kind of average it out, yeah, yeah. it's it's not if you don't unless you work all the time, right? It's not unless you're Frank Welker, or unless Rob you're Frank Paulson. Welter or, or Paulson. It's My, not a ton, a ton of money, and so the right. residuals really help those actors get through Absolutely. the times when they're not working as much. There was a period of time, and they don't do it anymore, where they used to do what's called a buyout, which is they would uh, buy you'd make an episode, and they would say we want to run that ten times for at the time it was like a thousand dollars, and this is when scale was about five hundred bucks, and they say we guarantee you whether that cartoon airs once or ten times we're going to guarantee you a thousand bucks twelve hundred bucks whatever right and that was a really good deal for everybody because they knew they got that money they don't do it anymore it's not done anymore i don't know why they, they gave up the buyout deal i think it it didn't work out for somebody and they negotiated it out of the contract right but it was kind of fun when people because there's that thousand dollar breaking point i don't know i've noticed it in my entire career that if you say to an actor okay we'd like you to come in and do this it's 966 dollars no thank you it's a thousand dollars okay <laughs> I don't know why. Sounds, it's just I it know. Sounds, it sounds more. It's like that it, on sale for nineteen ninety nine, not two hundred dollars. Nineteen ninety nine. Okay, I'll buy that. Nineteen ninety nine. If it's two hundred bucks, I'm not buying it. But it's uh, you know there was a very interesting period too because with the unions in animation because you know uh, historically SAG was film, AFTRA was television. Correct. Essentially, anything that was made on video would be AFTRA, and anything That's that right. was shot on film would be SAG. That's right. But then when with animation, and then when CG animation started coming around, there was this gray area of like, well, it's not really either. And so what I saw, and maybe I'm wrong about this, and I'm not disparaging anyone, but what I saw was the unions actually competing to get the contracts, like where they were going to be SAG or AFTRA. And I felt like in some cases the performers suffered a little bit because the unions were fighting over who was going to get. And so like they'd have to kind of undercut each other. Thank goodness they merged. Thank goodness. <laughs> absolutely. It made all the difference in the world because that was absolutely the case. It was. And you would see companies, because I'm a freelancer, I work with a lot of the different companies, I'd see them go, it, it, it's better for us if we get the actor to agree to the after contract. Right. And then you start talking to the agents and they say, is this a SAG contract or an after contract? Well, it's going to be after. I don't know if I'm going to give you my top talent for an after contract. Right. So it really got to be an issue. And now that they've merged, it's, that issue is gone. But there's all the new media stuff that's still questionable. You get these projects where people go, well, how is this going to air? Well, we're not really sure where it's going to go. We think it's going to go <laughs> on this thing called the web. <laughs> that's a big place. And we're not sure how, <laughs> how, well, how many times is it going to be broadcast? Well, how do you actually track that? How do you even, even now with a Netflix series, how do you actually track how many times someone is watching that episode of that cartoon and how do you make a residual form to figure that out it's not figured out yet it will get figured out one day sure. but I think actors are at this point where they're saying you know what rather than not get the work at all let's say yes and we'll figure it out as it goes along if they're going to guarantee me 78 episodes I'm going to dive in okay there's no residuals but 78 episodes is 78 episodes it gets me out of 
of the house every day. It's fine. It's a good thing. And, uh, but we'll see. Time will tell how they figure out that kind of thing. But it's like trying to get ratings. You know, we used to have all network shows. You could find out on a Monday morning how your Saturday morning cartoon did because the ratings came out. You can't tell how a Netflix show is doing very clearly. It doesn't have that same kind of rating sure. structure. So it's all different. Well, yeah, and, and, and it's, it, it feels like uh, in as much as everything just sort of evolved a bit with animation and voiceover, now it's completely evolving again just because of the way that people are consuming, consuming everything. And anybody with a computer and a flash animation system can make their own cartoon. You don't sure. have to go to a Warner Brothers or to a Disney or to a Nickelodeon to make a cartoon. You can make a really good cartoon on your own computer. Well, d- during the so when you so you were at Hanna Barbera and then you started Warner Brothers Television Animation. Do that twenty five years ago. God, I know it. I'm so old. I'm going to be sixty next year. Are you serious? I'm not kidding. First of all, you look fantastic, Thanks, man. Thanks, uh, man. And I am. Uh, I'm so. I'd love to hear what was it specifically about that time that you think made it so magical? Because it, it really felt to me. I could when I would watch those shows, it felt it didn't. There, there was a certain amount of pandering in the eighties in terms of cartoons. They're like, uh-huh. yeah, fucking kids will watch anything. Right. But when I watched the 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 new wave of Warner Brothers programming in the in the early nineties, what it felt like to me was a bunch of people who genuinely loved the original golden age of cartoons were now making st- like fans were now making stuff, and it just. It, there, there was there was much more warmth to it than, than in the eighties. And there, it's amazing how the audience switched from being kids and their parents who would sort of watch cartoons just to make sure the kids weren't watching something that they didn't want them to watch, to huge college audiences, enormous college audiences. Uh, Pinky and the Brain that was one of the biggest audiences were college students would get the big, and, and my sister who was a magazine editor sent me an article once that was a, from the New Yorker about um, what the uh, inmates at Rikers Island were watching yep. and at the time it was Pinky and the Brain um, Superman <laughs> and one other series that I directed I forget what it was I thought that was a demographic I did not know I was reaching <laughs> but I think what it was was there was this desire of the teens college students young adults to have that joy that we felt when we watched cartoons as a kid, and they became the consumers of those cartoons. So when Animaniacs came out, when Pinky and the Brain came out, they they were the audience. They wanted to see that. And we were the ones making it as well. So there was this commonality of this is what we want to make because this is what we want to see, and this is what our fans want to see. So the cartoons, I mean, this is in the time when when we were making Animaniacs, we were spending half a million dollars an episode. Oh, shit. That's a lot of dough. Nobody spends that kind of money for a TV series anymore, for an animated TV series. Half a million. But watch those episodes. They're individually scored with orchestras of 40 to 70 pieces. And so when you listen to them and you listen to, say, the, the countries of the world, you know, uh, Yakko singing the countries of the world, Rob Paul and listen to the score. And when he sings about Japan, you hear in the back in the orchestra being played. It's so subtle, but it's because they scored it specifically. And how to explain how um, cartoons before that were made, um, the Carl Stallings and those guys, they would create a bed of music. And okay, here's the intro. Here's what happens in a real action scene. Here's what happens when you're trying to get pathos and sadness. Here's what you play 10 seconds before the cartoon wraps. And those just got plugged into every episode. That's 
that's how those cartoons were made with a very small budget, music budget. Then we went into these enormous orchestra pieces that were stunning, that were gorgeous. And we were writing musicals. Those cartoons, Animaniacs, Tiny Toons, Pinky and the Brain, all were musicals. They had lots of music, and I loved doing that. And there were sometimes when I didn't even know that there'd be a character that'd say, okay, this is a, we're five episodes in, and we're, now we're going to have this Dr. Scratch and Sniff, and he's going to be this character. And I thought, well, who's in the cast? We could have Frank do it. We could have Rob do it. We could have Jess Harnell do it. Let's give it to Rob. And, and then it ended up being a major musical character. And thank God I cast Rob because he's a stunning musical actor. And let me tell you a little bit about Rob Paulson, if I may. Please. One of my favorite, favorite actors in the world. When we had done Tiny Toons, he had a relatively small character. I think he was Beaky Buzzard or whatever the character was called. Right. And then when we were casting for Animaniacs, we knew we wanted Rob to be Yakko Warner. We knew he was the guy. So what we submitted to Steven Spielberg were five auditions, numbered one, two, three, four, five. Three of them were Rob Paulson. <laughs> and we were trying to pull one over on Steven. If he had chosen one of the other guys, that would have been fine too. But we knew Rob was the guy. And absolutely, he, he anchored that show so beautifully. And then you add Tress McNeil and, and Jess Harnell to it, and you have a trifecta of stunning talent. Tress McNeil, who really was the June Foray of the 80s and 90s and 2000s. I mean, she's, yeah. yeah, she does all of the... Simpsons. All the other characters on The Simpsons that aren't the main cast. That's right, like, that's right. She's, she's, she's Agnes Skinner. She's yeah. Skinner's mother. Right. She's, you know, the crazy cat lady, which is such a stunning character. I love it. She just rants. She's and Lindsay Nagel. Everything. Cookie Kwan. Stunning. Yeah. Cookie Kwan. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Number one on the West Side. <laughs> I love that. And, and congratulations to them for 25 years on the air, The Simpsons. Good Lord, that's fantastic. What a wonderful series. 25 years. That's so weird. Brilliant. I wouldn't want to have to write on the 25th year of a series. Like, what the I, fuck else are we supposed to write I about? know, I know. <laughs> I, I, I saw Nancy Cartwright not long ago, and I love her so. And, and I was reminded that when we worked together, it was way before The Simpsons, we were at Hanna-Barbera. And I think it was one of those and Sons shows. It was Pink Panther and Sons or somebody, the kids. And, you know, Nancy always had a very youthful female voice. And I said, I really think you should try the boy characters on this. She's like, no, no, I don't really do boy voices. And I'm like, just give it a shot. Think a little bit tougher, maybe a little bit of a stuffed nose. Just give it that youthful, you know, take a, a, a physical stance that's a little more boyish. And then she started doing boy voices. And then she became Bart Simpson. Oh, my God. <laughs> that worked out pretty well. It worked out for her. Worked, worked out, out for her. pretty well. Yeah, that was fun. Um, so you, uh, I think I submitted a, you, you were the first person that told me how to make a voiceover tape. And I actually did in the animation lab, which even in the early nineties was archaic equipment for yeah, the time. Yeah, right. Uh, cause it was at UCLA. And so, but I remember going into the, what was the recording studio for animation and trying to make a, a voiceover tape. And I don't know if, I don't even remember if it was any good or probably not, but I don't, I don't remember what was on it. And, and now People always ask me, and I'm sure they always ask you, like, how do I get into voiceover? And I'm like, I don't know. I got pulled into it by there, – there are two people who were fairly instrumental in me getting um, into voiceover, uh, and you are one of those. Hey, cool. You are one of those people. That makes me very happy. Yes. That's a beautiful thing. Thank and you for And Sarah Noonan that. was the other person. Terrific. At, very, very uh, talented. Very talented She was a talent character. person, Nickelodeon, that used to go to all the local comedy shows in L.A. And she was like, Neat. you should do cartoons. I'm like, I would love to. Neat. And so Neat. That, those are my two. And you're doing a bunch of shows now, aren't you? 
I'm right now. I'm well. I'm doing. I'm doing a video game called Tales from the Borderlands, and I'm doing Sanjay and Craig. Excellent. And so that that's. I don't know about, how you have time. That's about all the time I have on my schedule to do. Uh, you know, to do voiceover Good stuff. For you. By the way, I just saw it, and I apologize. I hadn't seen it sooner. Um, at midnight, your show. Oh yeah, it's stunning. Oh thanks. It's so good. I appreciate. I it. was intimidated at the talent. I mean, yours and your guests. They're so fast. They're and nice so and funny. funny. Yeah. And boy, you're on your toes for oh, that. Oh, it's Oof. fun. Whatever drug you're doing, may I please have some? <laughs> Because boy, I need that. Really oh good God. work. Really it's good. A, work. The, the, the druggiest thing in my life is uh, is a chai latte from Starbucks. <laughs> That's it. I just get I just get hopped up on sugar and caffeine. Yeah, and then I'll do like, it. Go 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 go. I'll do it. But um, uh, so what is it? What you must do a million things where people ask you that question. What can I start telling people when they say, how do I get into voiceover? Like, Large, oh. expensive gifts delivered directly <laughs> to my office is always a really, really good thing. Something I can drive is a good idea. Yep. Um, no, the truth of it is, um, first of all, anybody who wants to get into this field has to be an actor. Sure. So if you are not already a trained actor, start taking real acting classes so that you understand the terminology. So when I talk about things, when I'm directing you and I say things like subtext or pre-life, you know what those things are. So you've got to be a good actor first. Then there are Dozens of voiceover classes specifically geared toward animation taught here in Los Angeles. You have to screen them. You have to make sure because I've seen names of people teaching voiceover classes for animation whom I've never heard of before. Mm -hmm. If I've never in my 25, 30-year career ever even heard of them and they're teaching an animation class, how do people How do people know, though? How will they there's know? There's a book. Well, what you do is there's a book called The Voiceover Resource Guide, and there's a list of all the teachers that are teaching voiceover classes. And it breaks it down. It tells you if there's a private they're teaching or big classes or whatever. And then you ask to audit those classes. You see what, when they teach and if it fits into your schedule, where they teach, can you get there? It's Los Angeles. It may take you an sure, hour and a half right. to drive there. Um, and then ask to audit, which they usually charge a very minimal fee, 25 bucks to come in and sit and watch a class. And then see how often the, each actor gets up to the microphone. See if you like the way the teacher treats the actors. I never understand anybody who treats actors badly. Mm -hmm. How can you ever get a performance from an actor if you treat them badly? Actors are very sensitive beings. You want them to be <laughs> sensitive. They are. I appreciate that. I want that sensitivity. That's what I want in my cartoons. So watch how the actors are being treated by the director and how often they're getting up to the microphone. And then plunk down your four, five, six hundred bucks for a six-week workshop. Um, there's also some workshops taught that every week they simply bring in a, a guest director. So they'll bring me in. They'll bring Ginny McSwain in. They'll bring Chris Zimmerman in. They'll bring in people who do video games predominantly mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. And that's a great six-week workshop where every week that you get the exposure to someone who can actually give you work. And that's great. You get to do a, a little song and dance in front of them, and that's great. Um, and then you have to have a demo. And a really great thing to do is go to um, videovoicebank.net. You do not have to be a member. Up on the top menu, you'll see, I think it's called voiceover demos. Click on that, and then every agency in Los Angeles and New York has their clients' one-minute demo on there. Click on the animation aspect of it, and then listen to some demos. And you'll be able to tell which are good ones and bad ones. Can you cast that voice? If you listen to that voice and you go... That would be a great scientist voice, or that would be a great villainous voice, or that would be a great whatever voice. Then that's a good demo. If you listen to it and you go, I don't know what that voice is. <laughs> I don't know how. I can't see something around that voice. You need to be able to picture what that creates. Is that a doctor voice? Is that a bad guy? Is that a good guy? Is that a little kid? Does that sound like a 43-year-old woman trying to do a kid? Or does that really sound like a kid? Those kinds of things. On your demo, only put what you do 
wonderfully, what you do really, really well, what you do better than anybody else. We don't need to hear another Margaret Hamilton witch. Everybody can do that. We need to hear a witch we've never heard before. Don't do another John Wayne impression. Don't do another Christopher Walken impression. Everybody's doing that. Find some obscure, wonderful impression of somebody that's pretty well known. If someone could do a Don Draper John Hamm voice. That would be really cool. If somebody could find, and this is what happened several years ago when I, I really do believe we can credit Jeff Bennett with doing the first Christopher Walken. And then everybody wanted to do Christopher Walken because right. it's such a wonderful hook. You can really get your teeth in it. What did he do it for? Um, Animaniacs, I think. He was Animaniacs? Yeah, I think so. Um, and so uh, if you can find a really cool impression of somebody contemporary and, and to be the first one to do it, Throw that on there. That's actually how I got uh, this show called The X's, which was... Oh, yeah, I remember on, The X's. Yeah, X's on Nickelodeon, yeah, which yeah. was really fun. Patrick Warburton and yeah. Wendy Malick, and, and I played the villain, this character called Glowface, and they, I auditioned for Carlos Ramos, who's now a friend of mine, and uh, he, he was the artist. He's an amazing artist. And, uh, um, and so I was about to leave, and I was like, can I just try one more thing? And... He had this gap in his teeth. Like, the character had these big teeth and a gap in his teeth. And so I did a very bad impression of Wallace Shawn from The Princess Perfect. Bride. Perfect. And so it came out like this. <laughs> and so if, you, if I didn't tell you that I was doing Wallace Shawn, I don't think you would go, oh, that's Wallace right. Shawn. But the great thing about impersonating a kind of obscure thing is that... If your impression is not good, that's actually good. Absolutely. Because you're, you create a voice. you're creating a voice and you're translating something. Yep. Like you're picking out a specific vocal quality of something. Right. And it's making a new thing. It's a wonderful and way it to got create me that, It got me that job. I love that story. Uh, Tara Strong came in to read for me for Teen Titans. And we had this very dark character called Raven who was very kind of – she didn't really play well with others. She was kind of dark and ethereal and stuff. And, and she did two very good auditions. And I said, okay, got any other ideas? She goes, no, that's, that's all I got. Okay, good. And she comes walking out of the booth. And as she's standing next to me, getting ready to leave the studio, she said, you know what? What if I did kind of a Zelda Rubenstein kind of thing, which is the, the, yeah, the woman from Poltergeist. From Poltergeist. Poltergeist, right? And so she went in the studio and did something that really sounded nothing like Zelda Rubenstein, but it was her kind of bad impression of channeling Zelda Rubenstein. And she got the voice. Yes. She got, she got the role. And that's exactly the same story as yours, which is it's not a spot-on impression. It's your version of that. But it gave you a jumping-off point. Yeah. It gave you something. Some hook, something to chew into. And if you have a good model, and Carlos is a wonderful artist, if you have a good model to work from, if you can see that model, you see that drawing, that gives you so much information. When you come into audition, you go, okay, he's short, he's fat, he's got a gap in his teeth, his hair is wild. That gives me an idea of where to jump off with this voice. If we don't have a drawing yet, it's a little bit harder for you to come up with a voice. Right. <laughs> it's, it's much more, well, we're going to draw the drawing after we hear the voice, and that makes a lot more pressure on the actor. Right. But ideally, you get a, a, when you come into audition, you get a character design, you get a slight description of the character, and ideally, three or four paragraphs that give you different aspects. So we don't want to hear you do the piece of copy all exactly the same. We want to hear what it's like when you're intimate and quiet, and when you're really big and loud and mad, and when you're crying, and then that shows that kind of pathos. And so we want to hear as many different dimensions to the character you can give in a 30-second audition. And also, I think if people see, you know, I think, uh, you, I think you can go with the most obvious choice based on the character, but sometimes it's fun to go, what is the exact opposite Absolutely. voice? And then hit that. Yep. I think one of the things that I, uh, I, I learned more about voiceover working on Barnyard, because X's was, I was isolated. Right. But Barnyard was some of the best people. It was... Uh, 
uh, uh, Cam Clark and and Tino Insana and Rob Paulson and you know guys like Jeff Bennett and, and DiMaggio. John oh, DiMaggio yeah. would come in. Kevin Michael Richardson and yep. and the thing that I you know would learn from them is if um, if someone was like, well, just do just do this one line. They would do three or four takes on it and do three or four completely different things just for choice. And all of the choices, I'd be like, fuck that. I, <laughs> They're all, all of those work. Yep. yep. But just but. I learned so much about different ways to attack a line yep. just from watching those guys. And that particular technique of doing three takes of one line is, is brilliant. And I don't know who came up with it, but I stole it years ago, <laughs> which is just saying to an actor, when they're having trouble with a line, you just say, you know what, just do it three times. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's some, I think there's some kind of release of pressure for that because like, okay, I have three whole takes to get this right. And then they almost always nail it on the first one. I don't know why that is. And then they have the second one and oh, that's good too. And then a third one and that's good too. And usually as I'm directing, there's somebody next to me keeping the log and I'm indicating preferred takes. And when a really good actor is doing that three line, three take technique, sometimes I'm like, Keep all three. Yeah. I can't even tell you which one I like better right now. And you don't know what's going to cut better into the track, the line before it, the line after, which one's going to fit in better. And so you have to just keep them all and the editor has to play with it. Do you think your background – you said you started – you originally were an actor. I was. Uh, what did you what, – what kind of stuff did you stage. do? You did stage. Stage. Mm-hmm. There's a very specific talent to being uh, an animation director because – you very quickly because we don't have a lot of time no, in the no, sessions. You, there, you, you have a lot of people coming in. You're a lot of, you very quickly, if someone doesn't understand something, have to give exactly the right note in order to extract exactly what you need. It's like yeah. you understand how to talk to a performer. It, it, that's come from experience. It's also come from having been an actress, having been an agent, having been a casting director, having been a director. And there's also that um, you get one, two, three takes on your own, and then the fourth take, I'll tell you how to do it. Yeah. And in my entire career, only twice has any actor ever said to me, please don't give me a line reading. Only twice. Really? Yeah. yeah. I prefer, I, you know, like... Of course. If I can't, if I'm not getting something and I see the person needs something, I go, tell me, just tell me exactly Absolutely. what you need. I'll repeat it. Exactly. It's right. your, you're because, looking at the storyboards. Because we don't have, as you said, time to like organically go through a rehearsal process and find that exact reading and let you find it. This is not a class. This is a professional situation where you're being paid. And if I know exactly what the read is and you don't find it in three or one of those three reads doesn't work because you may have a completely different read than what I had in mind and your read may be better. That's a lovely thing when that happens. But if you don't get it in three and I know what the read is, I'll tell you what to do and, and you can regurgitate it back to me. And then we all go home and drink <laughs> wine and move on to yeah, our next I'll, gig. Because, you know, <clears throat> you, uh, you'll be looking you, – you can see the storyboards and the actor doesn't always – doesn't really Correct. see the storyboards. And so – you can see like, oh, well, here he's actually – his head is really big and his mouth is stretched out and it's bigger. So you have to – That's right. So it's not – you know, that's why it's funny that anyone would ever have an ego about that. It's like, no, we, this is – you're a part of a puzzle and we need to make sure that we all fit that's in. That's right. None of a, those – neither of those two actors were voiceover actors. Oh, they were on-camera actors who were asked to do a voiceover. Gotcha, 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 So, gotcha. yes, a voiceover actor wouldn't do that. Not but a smart is, one. But it's such, a, it's such an orchestration of so many pieces coming together – to, to make something work. It's very much like conducting an orchestra because I've, I've got to be aware of so many people in the room. I've got an engineer to pay attention to. I've got the actors to pay attention to. I've got the log taker next to me. I've got producers, writers, uh, animation directors behind me. I really am orchestrating the room. And so there is a lot of... And I think part of this, my talent at that is being one of eight kids. And so I always was around a tremendous amount, a cacophony, always. There was always a bunch of things going around. And so that didn't freak me out. And a lot of voiceover directors are now standardly 
just bringing in one actor at a time. Mm-hmm. And that that's fine if you have to, but I like that ensemble. I like that energy in the room. I like that play. When I record an actor all by himself, like if I brought you in and we've had to do this before, I've got to get more reads from you because I may not have recorded the actor who's going to record yeah, you before don't know. You or after. I don't know. So I've got to get every possible read. And my chance of getting you back in the studio again to re-record is... It's not going to happen. Yeah, because so, a, a lot of times that has to get corrected in ADR, where you go back in, and the uh, animation's already locked. Automated so dialogue then, then replacement. You're stuck. That's it. Auto- automated dialogue replacement is the uh, is the ADR where you go in and and a lot of times you can find new bits in there. It's like, oh, I did. They drew it this way. Right. And I can do this, but and then that's when you hear the other actor. That's oh, yeah, right. okay. Well, we didn't. We have to sync up now. That's right. And, or we looked at a scene together, you and I, and we're recording, and it looks like a scene like we are right now, right across from each other, and we're just having this conversation. When the animation comes back, they've put you clear across the room from my character. <laughs> and so we can no longer have this level. We have to now be talking like this to right. make it make sense, or vice versa. We thought you were going to be far apart, and now you're standing right next to the character, and you're screaming. <laughs> so we have to fix that. That's what ADR is for. You know, talking about giving line readings, I heard um, Cam Clark, who played uh, the ferret on Barnyard, he told this story about why all the Peanuts cartoons, why all the kids talk like this. Like, it was always a weird cadence to it. Right. It was a, it was a weird, it, it was, it always was so strange. I could never put my finger on it. And he told me, I don't know if this is true, but he said that um, those, all those kids were given line readings by the same guy who was not an, an actor or a director, but he basically just, he was a producer, I guess. Uh-huh. And he was like, okay, say it like this. And so the kids would go, this Christmas is gonna be great, and so that's why all those pe- like what evolved as this as style. its own little style yeah, yeah. was just because one guy gave them like weird line readings. Isn't that wild? I didn't know that story, but it makes total sense. And even today, anything new produced has that same has style that to same it. cadence. It's really interesting, isn't it? It's and you can hear edits too. You can hear where where the kid maybe got half the line right. <laughs> and then they had to cut the next half of the next take in there, and it sounds like a cut, but it sounds right for that that project. For and there's probably 25 kids credited with the voice of Charlie Brown, and that's true because that's one of those voices where the kids usually are about 10 or 11 years old. <laughs> they get to 12. Get, is it? That's it. Their voices change. They don't sound the same at all anymore. Oh, and so rats. You, and so, <laughs> so you have to find another kid to come in and sound like Charlie Brown. Do you work with a lot? Of, you must work with a ton of kids, too. I love working with Cause kids. Because I see you at Nickelodeon. I accidentally come into your... I, so many times we'll go into the wrong studio at Nickelodeon and go, oh, I just want to say hi. Makes me happy. And then go back into Makes me happy to see you. Um, but yes, I work with a lot of kids. There's something so natural about kids, and they have a, a breathing pattern where they'll breathe in a weird place where an adult won't do that. They, they'll... You know, kids will talk and and then they breathe and and they break things up and and they'll kind of stammer sometimes and that's natural and beautiful and wonderful. Adults will tend to do it the way they speak as adults. Kids also have the most natural, wonderful reactions. And I worked with a kid not long ago on a little pilot I did called Nico, and this kid was so stunning and so desiring to be good for me that in the middle of the recording we had took a little break and he came in stood before me and said am i doing a good job for you i really want to do a good job Aww. and i tell you i it, it took me like five minutes to get my shit together after that because it was like <laughs> if only every adult actor i worked with had that <laughs> attitude i would be a happy happy girl but the kids are there's a natural sound that a few adults can capture but there's just nothing like the real thing. Yeah. And Nickelodeon is one of the studios that embraces working with real children. Um, the Cora series that just wrapped, stunning kid voices on that. Absolutely stunning. Yeah, and my ex-girlfriend Janet. 
she is terrific on that series. You know, what was so fun is that when we were together is when I first started working in voiceover. And I kept saying to her, like, and Janet's super funny. And she does great voices. And I was like, you should be doing voiceover. And she was like, yeah, I know. I, I guess I, I, it just seems so hard to break into. And she would go and get close and not get cast and not get cast and not get cast. And she'd be like, I'm never going to get into this. And I go, trust me. You just, you fucking have to keep, you just keep going Don't back. And I go, you're too good not to get it. And then she lands Cora. And I think you called me about her or you emailed me or something. Are I you did. still with her when the Cora, Cora began casting, which would have been, God, four, five years ago? Yes. Yes. I think you contacted me and said, my girlfriend is reading for this. And I wasn't casting it. I was just directing it. Mm-hmm. And I remember that, that, that connection. I was like, this is so great. And then I made the mistake of saying, so Chris and you are in Chris. And she's like, oh, well, we're not together. No, we're not together anymore. <laughs> yeah, so by that sorry. point, we were not together I'm sorry, anymore. I'm sorry. But, but, but you stayed friends. Yeah, we're, st- we're amazing friends. She's, yeah. she's, she's incredible. But... You know, like watching what, I mean, it's amazing. You, you don't really understand, like, because you, you're in a booth and you're just like, oh, and you, and the way the animation works is you usually forget what you've done because it takes so long before something comes out. Right. But, but Janet in particular, watching, watching what happened with her life just being attached to Cora and Airbender and like, now she goes all over the world and does these conventions and people love Cora. And- it's a beautiful series and she's wonderful on it. And the fan base is enormous and they're so excited for every single episode. The producers who made that series made um, Avatar The Last Airbender first. Cora was the spinoff from right. that. And the first series, Avatar The Last Airbender, the last three, the, f- the finale, the last three episodes were very, very delayed. There was a, a many, many month break between the last episode and the final, the finale, the last three, because they called some crazy 400 retakes. I mean, it was crazy. It had 5.9 million people view it. Wow. On the air, on Nickelodeon when it came out. And then that was the kind of fan base that came to Korra. Mm-hmm. And so it was equally as beautiful a series. And it's, it's epic. It's, it's a wonderful story told over a long period of time. And as you know, you record a cartoon and then it goes away to animation overseas and doesn't come back for nine months. Yeah. And it's like just it's like a, a baby. baby. It yeah. is. And then we do the ADR and then it airs maybe a year after it was initially recorded recorded. And so Janet started working on this series five years ago. We just had the wrap party last week. We just finished the whole series. We did the last ADR. Last yeah, that was kind of week. emotional, I, I think. It was, it was beautiful. And you know what? Because she hung in there, because you kept telling her, don't give up, don't give up, she got a beautiful role on a beautiful series. And, and that goes out to everybody who wants to be a voiceover actor. Keep trying. If you really have this heart and soul that says, I know I should be doing this, if you are a good actor, keep auditioning. Keep auditioning. Your time will come. And by the way, I don't want it to sound like I deserve any credit for her getting Cora. <laughs> no, like, she got it on her own. She, she, she got it on she her own. Is ama- she but did. I just mean, that, that, that's more to say, like, it, it can be hard to sort of, because a lot of the same people work in voiceover. Yeah, yeah. You, it's very, oh, yeah. you know, you, you as a director, you know, oh, I know what this actor can do and this actor, and, and you all kind of have this... Um, you know, you, you just have this natural, uh, you're all in sync and right. it just, it's very, but if you keep pushing, you keep pushing, like eventually, like once you get in though, then you get kicked around a lot. Absolutely. I mean, I've kicked around the business. In a good I don't way. Mean kicked in the head. I yeah, mean, yeah. just like bounced around Absolutely. To, to different projects. When you have a credit like Cora on your resume, you're, you've got a, you've got a really nice credit sitting there. Anytime you get 
cast in a major series like that or any other series like that, you've got something in your back pocket. You've got something that gives you credibility in this industry, not just a million really close auditions where you almost got it. You actually got the gig. And that means you've had all the experience of sitting next to Frank Welker and Rob Paulson and Maurice LaMarche and Jeff Bennett and James Arnold Taylor and learning from them. And that was what Janet did so well was absorb from all the other actors she saw working and really learned how to do this thing really well because she was really quite intimidated when she got the gig. Delighted, but intimidated because you're sitting next to people who've been doing it for 20 years. And then you're like, I, uh, do I deserve to be here? You start having those doubts as an actor. Wasn't J.K. Simmons on the show too? Yes, and he's an amazing yes. actor. He just nominated for a Golden Globe. So cool. I know. Really happy for him. And, and, and I said, I'm so glad you brought him up because I adore him and have worked with him for years. Um, uh, the first or second episode that we were uh, working on for Cora, um, the two producers were also main writers on the series and wonderful writers. And they also had a really, really talented writing staff. And as I watched JK read their words and act their words, we finished the sessions and I turned to them and I said to the producers and I said, I have absolutely no writing ability. I have none whatsoever. But it must be positively thrilling for you to hear an actor as good as JK read your dialogue. And they said, it's, it gives us goosebumps. It's just so exciting to hear him bring words that look good on the page, but when they're acted, oh my Lord, it takes you to a whole other place. It's fantastic. Yeah. And also when you hear someone put a spin on something, we're like, oh, I never, oh, wow. Like it's, he interpreted that completely differently than I intended. And that's valid. And you know, when I prep a script, I call it homeworking a script. I hear the track in my head. I hear how I think the lines should be read. And my job is to keep a completely open mind. So what the, when the actor does something different in the studio, I, I turn to the producers and say, it's not what we might have thought, but doesn't that work? It was organic and real and in the moment. Can we make that acting that the actor came up with work rather than what we had in mind? And that makes for a really nice cartoon where the actors feel like a real part of the creative process. They're not just regurgitating lines That's why out. it's better to record as a cast because I you agree. get these sort of organic – that's what was so fun about Barnyard is that I felt like um, there was this really authentic relationship between the characters because we all – like a lot of what people were hearing and there was no ego about you know the writers and the and the the, the director who was also the head writer who was so funny a guy named Jed Spingarn one of the funniest people truly hilarious um, worked with was, him at Warner Brothers a thousand years ago yeah Jed. well there was no ego about like hey it doesn't matter who came up with the idea just put the funniest Isn't thing that great? just put the funniest thing in there that gets you the best stuff i think you did you decor the whole time yes so, okay, so then it was okay. So you brought me in and made I, I got to be adult Sokka for an right. episode, really which cool. People still, I still get that. Like, oh my god, I didn't know. Like, it, it affected people because that referenced the first, the first series. series. So all the fans yes. from that and the series from the new one, and you being you, and yeah, I got it to all, be. It all worked together. Yeah, that's nice. pretty fun. That's a good one. Um, when uh, when you're directing something like Batman, what what's what are the different challenges that you have between you know? Directing like Animaniacs or like the the different comedy versus like really intense. Yeah, it, it is different. It, it, the the job is the same, but the way I treat actors is different. Um, so often in a Batman series, because they're action shows, there's a lot more oofs and uggs and fight walla, mm-hmm. and a lot of that's done in ADR and done to picture, and that makes it a lot easier because you can do a library of impacts and strains and sounds, and then just plug that in every time the character throws a punch. You always hear the same. Hugh! 
And that gets boring. It sounds homogenized. Much better to do it to picture and make everyone different and make it match. Um, but there's also that it's a different kind of acting. You can't really hide behind a voice when you're doing an action show, unless you're doing something like The Joker, and not to say that you would hide behind that. Mark Hamill did a stunning Joker for us for years and years and years. But when you're acting like a Kevin Conroy who really is pretty much just using the deepest range of his voice to act the voice of Batman, all the various actors that we brought in, pretty much I cast them because of the quality of their voice. It really becomes much more of an acting scene than a cartoon scene. Yeah, yeah. It's much more about in the moment, you're talking to Catwoman, you're talking to the Penguin, you're talking to whomever, you're talking to Robin, you're talking to whatever. Um, And it's more about being in the moment, setting the scene for them a lot more. Okay, you're in the Batcave, you're this far away, uh, you're walking toward the Batmobile and you're calling back to Robin. So that kind of, it's more of that kind of direction than, okay, you got to be goofier. You know, because uh, very often with the really cartoony stuff, okay, sillier, bigger, broader, go bigger, go, you know, I like being able to tell an actor, go too far, excuse me, and let me pull you back, mm-hmm. as opposed to, I need more, I need more, I need yeah. more. That doesn't happen so much in the action stuff. The action stuff is a lot more acting a scene. Yeah, because what, when I was doing Green Arrow, I felt, I, I had been doing Barnyard, and so... It was, you know, you kept having to be like, just do less, do right. less, until I was basically just like this. And I was doing nothing. I felt like but I acting. was doing, I felt like I was doing nothing. Right. But you were acting. You weren't, you didn't have to mess so much with the voice. You right. didn't have to actually manipulate the instrument, which is the voice. You just had to act, find the placement for the voice, and then act through it. By the way, like when, I've, I've actually been in conversations before where people are talking about like, Oh, you know, like the 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 the, the Batman's like uh, uh, Keaton and Bale and uh, and Clooney and Kilmer, and I'm always like Conroy. Like he to me is in the pantheon of of Batman. He is. He absolutely is. He's earned it. He deserves it. He's stunning. I loved that show. Constantly reviews for the live action feature films reference Kevin Conroy's Batman. There are so many, you know, Christian Bale, I think, is a wonderful actor, but people mock his voice when he plays yeah, Batman. Like right. And they'll reference Kevin Conroy and say, why didn't he just listen to Kevin Conroy and, and do that instead of this forced down, silly sound that he's doing? And Kevin is a stunning actor, a, a classically trained actor, a Juilliard graduate, a, a soap opera actor, a stage actor. And that's what made so many wonderful moments in that world of Kevin Conroy's Batman and <coughs> excuse me I'm getting over cold I'm sorry that's okay me too um, everybody in the world is getting over cold right the now worst time of year uh, the worst the worst um, and for you too when people come in with colds oh I'm like you know what I would love you all the better if you don't come in with your cooties because you're going to infect this entire studio of people come in next week when you're well right um, but um, Kevin Conroy's Batman is for so many people of our generation and I that's a big range because we're of different ages um uh Kevin Conroy's Batman was their introduction to Batman Mm -hmm. they didn't meet the Adam West Batman they didn't meet even the George Clooney or the uh, Michael Keaton Batman their introduction to Batman was Kevin Conroy's Batman from the animated series and and bazillions of people come up to me during comic cons and we've seen each other at many of these events where they'll come up and it's a 25 27 year old man saying 
you, Andrea, and Kevin Conroy made Batman be real for me. And now my kids are so loving Batman because that's the Batman that I turned them on to. And for the first thing that happens is I feel very, very old. And then <laughs> very, very proud because I think that was a quality show. That was a beautiful series. Bruce Tim was a stunning producer on that. And we created an entirely different type of cartoon that real, than really had ever been made before. It was a much darker cartoon. Very specifically, you know a bit about the art in animation. Um, it was the first series because they knew they said, literally, you want to make this a dark cartoon. And they meant that not just in the acting, but they meant the way it looked. Yeah. And it was the first time they ever used background paper that was black. Oh, And then drew on top of that. So instead of using white paper and coloring the background dark, they did black paper. Wow. And, which was a stunning idea. And, um, oh, yeah, that's and, right. They were still doing cell animation. That's right, back in the day. <laughs> Do you all know what cells are? Cell, you know, but then, but the fun part about that is that then you can collect this. Like now, everything, you, there's really nothing to collect. Like you can manufacture a still. Sure. But, but those of us who have cells, oh, yeah. we're sitting. Oh, what do you have? Oh, I have so many. I have an original Jetson cell. Holy shit. I have an original Topcat cell. Topcat. I have a wonderful Hanna-Barbera cell that was... Um, Officer Dibble. Did, oh, the best. And I actually got to meet Arnold and work with him a bit. Um, we did a, a, a not terribly good Scooby-Doo season that was called... Uh, the 13 Ghosts of the thir- Scooby-Doo. I remember the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. And it was introduced by... Vincent Price. Who came in to work for us, and uh, that was the joy the of The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. Oh, what a wonderful man he was. What an elegant, wonderful... And he signed, autographed a cell for me, which I have, and I, it's one of my prized Vincent Van Gogh. Wow! Right? Wow, you have not done enough drugs because you can <laughs> totally remember these things. Vincent Van Gogh was his name. Um, and, uh, and then I have a bunch of Animaniacs and Pinky the Brain and all those kinds of cells because every Christmas, Warner Brothers gave them as gifts to the employees. Oh, my so God. So we got a bunch of those. That's better than what they did in the old days of animation where they're like, uh, wipe these off. Oh, oh <laughs> Throw this shit did. away. They threw away dumpsters full of cells. They <laughs> no. didn't know what to do with them. And, and if I'd only known, I would have dumpster dived and gotten tons of them and be a very, very wealthy woman now. But I have, I have a very good collection. Did you ever meet Mel Blank? I worked with him many times. I have, when we were making the Jetsons, because he was spacely. Right, of course. So I have, um, one of my jobs was, as the casting director at Hanna-Barbera, was we would Xerox the scripts. They were typed scripts. And we would Xerox them, and I'd write down the actor's name on the top of the script and which characters they were playing in the episode. Because he'd be spacely, and then, you know, guy three and, you know... Handyman 2. And so you'd always write down which characters the actors are playing. And I would put the scripts on the stands. The actors would come in. And at the end of the session, I would be the one that had to go and collect all the scripts. And one day I had the good sense to grab Mel's script, paperclip it, and take it home. Because Mel underlined every word with a squiggle or an accent this way or a half line this way and a half line this way and a little circle over this. And so every, I've done that before. Every word, he had predetermined how he was going to read the line. That's awesome. And I kept that script. I have that. That's another one of my prized possessions. That's, that's fantastic. That that, the variety, I think it was variety, but the ad they took out when he died, I think in 89, 88 or 89, uh, where it had all the characters and the spotlight and the empty Isn't microphone the, and it the said first speechless. Time, <sighs> the first time they ever did that kind of ad, it was, and they've done several since, but it was, it really touched me that ad. It was beautiful. It was a beautiful, it was a, it was a beautiful, too. beautiful. He really was one of a kind it, it, because he was such a good actor. And you know, the reason why Mel Blanc was Mel Blanc and was so famous for it was 
absolutely financial. They did not want to hire 17 actors. They wanted to hire one actor to do all the voices, and they wanted to pay him a chunk of change instead of paying 17 actors. And so when you listen to some of the stuff that Mel did, for example, any of the old Speedy Gonzalez cartoons, there would be six Mexican mice in that cartoon, all voiced by Mel Blanc, all sounding completely different. Every one of those six voices were Mel's, but they were all Mexican, all with the accent, all little mice, but all different. He well, was stunning. My, my favorite trick, uh, my, my favorite thing that he would do is if he was doing like Daffy impersonating bugs, oh. where it was not, it was basically that character doing a bad impression of his other character. Wasn't he remarkable? Yeah. Was Duck amazing. season, rabbit season, duck season. Yeah, yeah. Remarkable. Remarkable. I mean, and every once in a while you'll hear an actor do that. The Simpsons do that quite often. Yeah. Where it'll be, you know, um, Homer doing an impression of Grandpa. <laughs> Both are voiced by Dan, yep. but it's, you know, Homer can't do a really good Grandpa. He's got to do an impression of his own, you know what I mean? It's just yeah. like so convoluted, it boggles the mind. So uh, if you've ever had DiMaggio and Kevin Michael Richardson in the same room, what sort of a matrix have you trapped them in to focus them? Because <laughs> those, those guys together are so fucking funny. And go so far off the rails. Well, I, I actually have had that instance. Might have to separate them. I, I, I have had to. And um, <laughs> I, I love them both so much. They're so damn talented. They're crazy talented. I invited them both to a birthday party of mine that I threw in New York. And I had rented a bus to take us from our hotel to the Metropolitan Museum of Art where I threw the party. And I, I rode two buses. And I didn't ride the bus that they were on. But my family still tells the story of the two of them entertaining <laughs> with dueling Tracy Morgan impressions. <laughs> which I am so sorry that I missed because it must have been hilarious. John DiMaggio taught me how to do Tracy Morgan. Let me hear. You just... You just gotta pull your chin down to your chest, Mr. Lamont. Like, it's not a good one, but I could never do it before. See, it's a good place. To- I know what you guys are talking about. That's, like, it's, it's basically, he's, it. he's like, he goes, pull your chin to your chest. That's it. That yeah. made a big difference. But they are remarkably talented. I, I actually, at one point, actually uh, managed to get a group of women in the room that I always wanted to because they're all the most foul mouthed ladies <laughs> ever. So I got Pam Adlon and Gray Delisle, Gray Delisle. and Tress McNeil. And a couple of other just body, body ladies. And then went, what the hell were you thinking, Andrea? Because I, I couldn't get a line recorded. It was just, they were so funny and so body. And Pam will say anything. She'll just say anything. Do you know Pam? Yeah, she does, she does uh, Bobby, uh, Bobby oh, Hill. Of course, of course. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, I don't know her well, but I know her. Oh, she's just ridiculously and works, talented. And with Louis, like with Louis' show. And, oh, yeah. she's remarkably talented and really good at boy voices and, and just great. And I... I, I, I manufactured this session where I made them all get together in the room and I, I should have saved the outtakes of that because it was just the most obscene and wonderful episode of Thundercats. We remade Thundercats. <laughs> I know you guys remade Thundercats. And, and that was, the shame of it was it was a very good series and it did not get picked up only because the toy didn't sell. And the toys didn't sell because when you opened the packaging, the toys broke. <sighs> and there was nothing wrong with the series. The series was. I think my friend Matt Mercer produced. was on that he show. He was wonderful. Yeah, it was his first big series. Fantastic. And I was very proud to kind of bring him on and give him his first series. And and he's terrific. He, I still work with him today. He's terrific. But voiceover people are really nice too. You know, here's my impression of why that is: they are not being ever rejected because they're not 
tall enough or thin enough or blonde enough or young enough or pretty enough. They either can do the voice or they can't do the voice. It's very cut and dry. So their egos are much less affected by rejection. Right. It's really just, I'm going up against, I'm going to give the best job I can. If I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. If someone doesn't say, you know, you would have had it if you were blonde. Right. That's hard. That's really hard. You would have gotten it if you were 20 pounds lighter. Right. Oh, man. Sorry you're not attractive. God right. damn it. Right. A lot less neuroses exist in the voiceover field. And that's why I think also there's this huge amount of on-camera actors desiring to do voiceover, and not just because they don't have to memorize, they don't have to worry about how they look that day. People literally can come in in their pajamas, as far as I'm concerned. If their (laughs) voice is warmed up and they can do the gig, I'm I'm ready, set, go. Just let's do it. But um, that is a huge thing. And and a lot of rank-and-file voiceover actors rankle a bit at the celebrities that are coming in to do voiceover. And, you know, there was a big hubbub when, um, was it Chris Rock who talked about actors coming in and making a million dollars for a movie being just a voiceover? Yeah. Your average voiceover actor and your average on-camera actor doing voiceover doesn't make that kind of salary. You get a big, fat, huge hit like Shrek, you can negotiate a big salary. But most of these actors are coming in because they want to do the work, because they want to be in a Batman, because they want to play Batman. I've pursued actors forever and finally gotten them to come in because they have expressed to their agent they want to play Batman. When I first met Mark Hamill, it was because his agent called me up and said, Mark Hamill is a huge comic book fan, major collector, wants to be a part of the Batman series. So I brought him in. He did a guest role for me. He was terrific. We finished the episode. I thanked him. I shook his hand. He was very generous with his Star Wars stories, and it was lovely, and everybody was entertained. And then he pulled me aside, and he said, Andrea, I really want to be a part of the Batman series. And at that time, we needed to cast the Joker. And he became the Joker for how many years? 20 years? Which was amazing because his take on the Joker was completely different. Like, it, I think it would have been really easy to do, you know, Cesar Romero or Nicholson or something. And he just had that really crazy... Like, he just came in with a completely different... Genuinely scary. I mean, you know, he was a threat. That voice is threatening. And yet could be so silly and wonderful. And then when he got down to it, it, he really frightened everybody. And that was wonderful. Is there a common thread that you see with all of the top people in the field, like, that, that sort of... That you notice any consistencies? Like what really makes someone great at um, Good acting, obviously. Versatility, originality, and there's this camaraderie of people who will say, you know what, I'm so glad to audition for this, but I'm telling you, you should see DiMaggio on this because he does this better than I do. Mm-hmm. I have such respect for people who do that. When someone says, I, I'm happy to do this audition for you, but if you get Jess Harnell, he can knock this out of the park for you. That I love. And that I don't think that happens as often in the on-camera world where someone says, you know, you should see so-and-so on this. In the voiceover world, it happens all the time <laughs> where people are the generosity of spirit where they just say, there's room enough for all of us. And there, there really is. I mean, uh, every, I, I walk into a session in the morning and there's five actors that I know and love. And I walk in the session in the afternoon and there's four of those same actors and two more from something, you know, that, that yeah. aren't on that series. And, and then the next thing I go into, there's 12 actors and I don't know any of them because they're all brand new. But then there's two or three, there's the D Baker and, you know, um, Yuri Lowenthal and somebody else. And then you watch those people who haven't been doing it learn. And those are the smart people who like watch D Baker. And D is so generous about D Baker. For those of you who don't know, 
does creature voices like you wouldn't believe. Oh, yeah. I'm sitting here with a bottle of water. I could say to D, if this bottle were to speak, what would it sound like? And D will do a he voice. He can make his voice sound like it's a water creature. And you'll say, no, it's three quarters empty. And then he'll make that, he'll <laughs> yeah. make that change for you. And, and he's just stunning. And he's very generous about sharing that. He's actually got a website called I Want to Be a Voice Actor. So for anybody who wants to pursue voice acting, go to IWantToBeAVoiceActor.com. And D teaches you. How to do voices. Yeah. Stunning. He really cares about the art of it, too. And it is. It's an art that needs to be. It is precious in its own way. It it shouldn't be diluted. It should really be kept the art form that it is. It's special. And for those of you who are not in the field yet but have had the chance to watch a session, it's the most fun. And, of course, I like to do a table read. And and when you did shows for me, you saw the table read, which is when we screw up the most. And we screw right. around the most. And we swear. And that's where you get to hear Smurfs say dirty words. And that's where you get to do all <laughs> this kind of thing. But, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's absolutely joyous. And it's so much energy. And it's infectious. It's everybody. And you can see an actor come in. And, and, and this happens to me, too. If I'm not feeling well, I'll come in kind of low energy. And as soon as I start working... I'm I'm filled with energy. I'm filled with joy. I love what I do. And the actors that I hire love what they do too. And so it just becomes this huge love fest of let's just play for four hours. And then when we leave, we get a check. Yeah. A couple of weeks, we'll get a check in the mail that says you did a good job. And, and then 10 months, you'll see the cartoon on the air and you go, hey, I did do a good job. <laughs> that did work. What is uh, – do, do you have a particular favorite story or something? Is there is there something that you – you know, um, that when you think about like, oh, I got to be a part of that or something magical, well, something yeah. weird and magical. Happens. Yes. So it happens so often. And that's why I love this work so much. Uh, maybe a year ago, I got a phone call from Titmouse Animation Studio, yeah. which is a wonderful studio. I, I'm doing a series for them now called Turbo, which is great fun. And they, um, they called me and they said, Andrea, we're making a little short cartoon to go before a feature film. And it's with the guys from Metallica. Will you fly up to Marin County and record the guys from Metallica? <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so I think about myself as a, a, a you know a ten year old on Long Island with my Italian Jewish family and and this life that I had no idea that I was going to live and, and then you know forty years later going I'm flying to Marin for the day <laughs> to, to record a heavy metal band <laughs> doing ten lines of dialogue each and that was so cool and then every once in a while somebody will come up and say Andrea I saw your name on a credit the other day well, oh yeah the Metallica piece did you do that <laughs> so there's those weird one wonderful pieces that I get offered that are magical and wonderful. And, and when would I ever have gotten to shake their hands and, yeah. and, and been in their recording facility and, and seen all their, you know, wall of guitars and, uh, you know, just those wonderful kinds of things. Uh, Chris, it happens monthly that I have one of those stories that's just like, how did this happen? And here's something that's just remarkable to me. When I was 10 years old with my Italian Jewish enormous family of eight kids back on Eastern Long Island, um, I kind of dreamed as, as young girls do, what will my life be like when I'm an adult and what could I possibly have in my life? And I thought, dreaming, dreaming, dreaming. I want to be in the entertainment industry. Didn't know how, but somehow in the entertainment industry, I wanted to be married to someone from a foreign country with an accent who was an artist. 
And here I am, directing Voices in Animation, married to Rogério Nogueira, a Brazilian artist. Oh, wow. With an accent, and I refuse to let him get rid of it, because I love it so much. Are and, you voice directing him to keep his accent? <laughs> no, more Brazilian. No, I just, don't go to that, you know, accent reduction class. Don't go, don't go, don't go. <laughs> but it, it's just one of those dreams come true. It happens. You know, you can wish for something, and, and, and if you work, and, and, you know, it didn't come easy. I had to work really hard to get to where I am. But all of it joyous, all of it wonderful. And I paid my dues. There were, you know, some hideous, you know, instances. But when I look at it in hindsight, it was a joyous career. Well, and I, I, I mean, anyone that I've ever, where your name ever comes up, people, oh, I love Andrea. <laughs> like, there's also something, you know, you know, it's interesting because you, it's my, uh, my girlfriend said something really fascinating to me. I don't remember what we were talking about. I think it was about like, you know, like. Uh, I go, yeah, dudes, get, dudes who get plastic surgery look weird or whatever. And she said, my mom always told me that at 20, you get the face you're born with. And at 50, you get the face you deserve. <laughs> so in other words, like people who are really shitty people, like yeah, they yeah. just get like, they go into it, right? yeah, yeah. But you always, you have such a warm face and you like, you're always smiling. Like your face just naturally, you, you know, like it's, I'm a happy person. I, I really do wake up in a good mood. I, I just have a good temperament and it really takes uh, being acted upon by a bunch of negativity in order for me to not be happy. Yeah. I love what I do for a living. I love my home, I love my husband, I love my life, love my family. Uh, it's all good. I, I, I really am a happy person and I love actors. And I think that is why people respond to me so positively because they know I have such respect for what they go through every day. And why I love them so is because I live the life of an actor. I know what it's like to go out for auditions. I know what that rejection is like. I know what it's like trying to find a parking space when you've got to be there in five minutes and you're sweating and you know that you don't want to be late because it's the first time you're meeting this director and oh God, what a first impression I'm going to give. And, and then I know what it's like to get behind that microphone. And, and I always try to put a producer behind a microphone because they're back there behind me going, will you just have the actor do it this way? And I said, sure. At the end of the session, I say, will you get behind the microphone and do that line the way you wanted it done? And suddenly they go, wow, it's, it's hard. Yeah. It, you think you can do it until you're put behind the microphone. And then it's like, wow, suddenly all the liquid leaves your mouth and appears on the palms of your hands and you just sweat and you go, wow, uh, this is, it's, I know it's just me and a microphone, but I'm terrified now. Yeah. Cause it's, it is deceptively one of those things where you think like, What's so hard about talking in front of a... Exactly. It's like, all right, do this with this accent and this characterization, and here's the thing, and go, and then nail and this line and this emotion. Takes. And you, you have, have three, three takes. takes and you get have it. to do it. Get it. And I respect actors for that. I, I respect them for the way they expose themselves to me, because the, they really do. When you act, when you are a really good actor, you're exposing some aspect of yourself in, in that piece that you're doing. And so I love that willingness to give and take. And I always say to actors, either verbally or they can tell by the way I'm working... If you put yourself in my hands, I will not let your voice go out there sounding bad. Sure. I will replace you before I will let you be embarrassed by your performance. There's no point in my letting you go out with a bad performance. It will reflect on your career. And I have no intention of wrecking your career. I will replace you with another actor and find something else for you that's better. So I think actors respond to that. And that's why we have a, a mutual love. Well, there is. you do have to develop a certain comfort because there is almost... Uh... 
it, it, it can be it was more stressful for me recording Green Arrow because there were all these really great actors in a circle and then when my line was about to come up I'm like okay five lines it's mine <laughs> okay, here, okay I'm, I'm being tested now oh, yes Batman we have to like oh fuck you know like, I just get so but finding that level where you just you know you definitely make everyone very comfortable and also knowing that uh, it's okay to fuck up <laughs> right right like like, I, I'm there to catch you that's yeah. my job I'm there yeah. to catch you and like I said I'll tell you how to do it did you ever feel comfortable at the end of the green arrow oh yeah good yeah like I, you never you, I could never tell that you weren't comfortable. no I would always get so like tight like right before yeah. because it never was apparent oh, good. I never could see that so good 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 see I, what a good I, actor you are no I don't know <laughs> I don't I, I think that's why I host things more but um, I uh, I always love the stories where it, something accidentally happened in a session, and then that became a huge thing. thing. Boy, I wish I could remember some of those. I, I do have a funny story that I tell about Frank Walger, which is not exactly to your point, but um, at Hanna-Barbera, we used to record on these tall bar stools. They were padded bar stools. They were not chairs with backs of any sort. And Frank and all actors, good voiceover actors, use their arms and, and their bodies to act because it's very hard to to do a very high-energy character with your arms by your side or your hands in your pockets. You yep. need to kind of move around. And Frank used to tuck his legs, his feet, underneath the bar stool in those bottom rungs. And he was acting away and really flailing away and acting one day and just tipped his entire <laughs> and fell to the ground and of, of course at first we all were concerned for his well-being and then we laughed our guts out because it was just I'd never seen anybody act that hard that they actually <laughs> fell to the ground um, so Frank was okay Frank was fine and we and laughed harder than the rest of us we all just laughed really hard um, but there are I mean I have a million stories and I am writing a book you are. I, I am writing a book. I'm, I'm making notes and notes and notes about all these wonderful people that I've met and worked with. And, you know, I hired Mickey Dolenz at one point to, on the Batman series and threw a rap party at my house. And I went, I have a monkey in my house. <laughs> and, and all these wonderful actors, so many of which um, have passed away because they either were, you know, already quite elderly when I first met them or for whatever reason they, they are not with us anymore. And, and I wished I had been nerdy enough to take photographs with each of them and and I wish I had a photograph of myself and Elizabeth Montgomery and I wish oh. I had a photograph of all these people that I've worked with over the years. What did you work with her on? Uh, 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 Justice League, I believe. And she did a, a, a Western, I think it was a, um, I forget exactly. I didn't know Elizabeth Montgomery did Justice League? I think she did. It was it was either a Justice League or a Batman, but I'm pretty sure it was a Justice League. Early on, early Justice League. And all these wonderful actors that I've had the chance to meet and work with. And um, I, I, so I'm writing a book, and, and I have all these great stories about these. And I have to make little notes about them because you forget. I mean, you, know, you try to remember I mean, the fact that you could remember anything, but you try to remember some little wonderful story. And so I'm trying to keep track, and I, I am writing a book, and, and I'm excited about When's that going to be done? That's going to be, I, I plan to retire in five years. I, what? I, I only have about five years left. Oh, I'm getting tired. No, I know you deserve I, uh, your time. And but, I want to go live in Brazil. Uh, I want to go live in Brazil uh, with my husband there. Um, and then I will write the book then. God. I'll write the book then. I mean, I could be convinced to stay if there was a project that was just so demanding. But I figure in five years, we will have developed the technology where I can direct from anywhere in the world. That's true. And then I can be sitting in Brazil and directing you guys in Los Angeles. And you could be in Kauai and you could be in Los Angeles and you could be in San Francisco. And we could all be on the same pipeline and recording together. As long as we're close to the same time zone. <laughs> and even not. We can, we can figure it out. We'll figure it out. But I, I do think technology is getting certainly better. I mean, satellite recording is crazy. I, I, you're... 
we have technology where, and I'm sure a lot of you fans are familiar with what this is, when we do an ISDN record, Chris can be sitting in New York City, I can be sitting in Los Angeles, Chris's voice is bounced from New York to a satellite and records in Los Angeles. So rather than the old days when we used to listen over the phone and they'd record you in New York and FedEx the tape to us... Mm-hmm. Your voice is actually recorded in Los Angeles. We finished the recording session, and I've got the finished record in my yeah. hands. We can start editing instantly. It's a remarkable technology. So what? So I guess just give everyone some of the headlines. I mean, we've talked about a lot of things you worked on, but just it's okay if you repeat stuff. So what are what are some of your highlights? And well, when I started casting, I started casting on Smurfs. Mm-hmm. Smurfs was one of the first shows I ever worked on. Smurfs, Snorks. All the Hanna Barbera cartoons, <laughs> the Sea Smurfs, the, <laughs> <laughs> the Snorks. All the, that's right, that's right. All the um, Hanna Barbera stuff done in the eighties, from eighty four on, I cast. And then for, uh, I started working for Disney, and I did Ducktales. Woo! And then, sorry, it has to go that way. So it was Ducktales. Woo! <laughs> uh, a bunch of Rescue Rangers, which was the Chippendale series. Yes, uh-huh, yep. uh, but did a bunch of Winnie the Pooh. How wonderful! Uh, Jim Cummings. We didn't even talk about him. Another stunning voiceover actor. Yes. Jim Cummings. Um, and then. Then, uh, then we went to Warner Brothers and Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain, Tiny Toons. And I did get to work with Steven Spielberg. I got to direct Steven Spielberg. He appears as himself in a cartoon, and I've saved the outtakes in case I'm ever broke. Because <laughs> they are awesome outtakes. Um, and then um, uh, what I'm doing now, I did so much work for, Hannah Bar- I mean, for Warner Brothers that I'm so proud of. 23 films, 23 direct-to-video, Batman, Superman. Justice League, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, so many wonderful pieces. Um, And then um, Thundercats and I can't even remember. I have a pretty extensive resume. And then right now I'm doing um, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And that's really fun because in 1986 I was approached during the Screen Actors Guild strike against the animation houses. An interim agreement was signed with Fred Wolf. Fred Wolf called me and said, I got this silly five-episode project I want to do called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Would you like to come and direct it? And I said, oh, just based on the name, yes. And then I went to Hanna-Barbera because I was employed there at the time and said, can I do this? And they said, eh, we're still on strike and it's all in, um, we don't feel, and I couldn't do it. Here I am, what, 27 years later, and I'm directing Teenage Mutant. And Rob Mutant. Paulson came back. The only actor to do both series. Yeah. Um, different character for Rob. Different but, character, But, yeah. yes. So it kind of was a nice circle where I did now get to direct Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles for Nickelodeon. Uh, I'm also doing Turbo Fast, which is based on DreamWorks Feature. The Turbo, yeah. And the series is a Netflix series, and it's terrific. It's wonderful. Um, I'm also doing Puss in Boots, also based on the series. And I've just seen the uh, final footage on the first episode of that, and it's Brilliant. It's absolutely wonderful. Puss in Boots is coming out in January, January 16th. I and you said you're also doing Teen Titans? Teen Titans, I'm not doing right now. I did that okay. in the past. I did yeah. do Teen Titans. It's not, there's a one called Teen Titans Go, which I'm not doing right okay. now. Um, I'm also doing, I'm trying to think of, oh, I just finished a really cool video game, um, Firefly Online. Oh, shit, yes. Oh, my God. It's so good. Did you and get the cast? The whole cast. Every single one. And when I first saw Firefly, some. Nine, ten years ago, uh, Bruce Tim turned me on to it, and I watched the entire DVD, you know, all the episodes in a row, and I said, I am going to, in my career, hire every single one of these actors who are the main character because they're all stunning. And I can tell you that as of about three months ago, I've hired every single one of those actors. Oh, that's There was amazing. only one or two that I hadn't hired on other projects. Jewel Strait, I hadn't hired, I hadn't worked with her 
Everybody else I'd work with multiple times. So Adam Baldwin, Nathan Fillion, they're all in there. Ron Glass, uh, Marina Baccarin. Yes. Oh, Christina I Hendrix. work with Marina today. She did the last recording on the project today. So that's going to be a terrific game. Firefly, on- Firefly Online is coming out. And please, please, please get that game. It's online and it's going to be out in the spring. Spring, early summer. What is your favorite... Uh... What, do you, is there one particular short in the history of animation that sticks out as your favorite? There is. What that, is I'm, that I worked on? Uh, well, how about the, that you worked on and then just in general? Okay. Um, there's a Pinky in the Brain episode called Yes Always. And it's based on – this is a kind of convoluted story if we have time for it. Yeah. Maurice LaMarche, when he used to work for me, and he worked for me a lot at Hanna-Barbera, whenever we would – take a level from him, which means you just speak in the voice that you're going to speak in or speak at the level you're going to speak at so the engineer can set your microphones. Um, he would always do an outtake uh, or, or quote the outtake that Orson Welles exists and it's available online on YouTube um, where Orson Welles just berates a producer, director, and always says... The P commercials. It's all brilliant where he just says, what is it you want? In the, in the depths of your ignorance, what is it you want? Because whatever it is, I, I just can't see it. The right reading I'm giving for that line is the reading I'm giving. I mean, it just reams this point. You can guy. show me how to say in July, I'll exactly. go down on you. It and so really Mo bad. did that for me years and years and years. Whenever he would give his level, that's what he would do. And so for years, I kept saying, I have got to find a character to cast Mo as doing that voice because it's such a great voice he does. So we're casting Pinky in the Brain. We need an egotistical lab mouse full of himself, the smartest guy in the room. Let's cast Mo doing his Orson Welles, which is how we got <laughs> Mo to do the voice. That outtake reel. We actually verbatim took that and made it an episode of Pinky and the Brain, and you've got to see it if you haven't. It's called Yes Always, and it Brain is being brought in to do ADR on an episode of Pinky and the Brain, and it is in July. Do you really mean me? Do you really mean me to accent the word in show? And it does the exact. It's exactly that thing. And what was so great was Mo came in, and we always sent the scripts to the actors ahead of time. We didn't send that one because we wanted to see Mo's reaction when he saw this script. Because we really produced it for him. Peter Hastings wrote it, put it together for him. And Sam Kinison had just died, and Mo was devastated. And he walked into the session. You can see he's just a mess. He's fully affected by this death of a friend. And he looks at the script, and he sees Yes Always. And he starts. He says, I didn't get a script this week. I said, I know. We, we couldn't get it to you in time. It's on your stand. And he starts working through it. And you just watched the life come back into Mo's face. And, and it was such a joy to record this episode. And I appear in it, and the Peter Hastings appears in it, and Tom Ruger appears in it. And it starts with us saying, you know, uh, Mo's character, the brain, says to me, uh, what are you doing here? I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the director. He says, you get out. I take direction from one person, <laughs> which is, again, a quote from it. And so I'm caricatured in it, as is Peter, as is uh, um, Tom Ruger, and all the caricatures are done by my husband. Oh. Who was an artist on the show? Well, that and that brings it back around to what we talked about in the beginning of that level of comedy for the adults and the level of comedy for Absolutely. for the kids. So now you all have to go out and watch Yes Always, the Pinky in the Brain episode. But first, watch the listen to the YouTube clip or whatever clip you can get of the Orson Welles outtakes, which is just. By stunning. the way, I think people. I think sometimes you know, like. Uh, companies are too focused on let's just make something for kids kids but there's something so special about making something for both because it encourages parents to watch and like the same stuff as their kids and that's important that's a beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing for that family it's a beautiful thing for i mean on a very mercenary terms the, the adults are the ones that are going out and purchasing 
right? They're the ones that are buying DVD sets. There's the ones buying things that are made directly for DVDs. So you want something that parents will want to watch with their kids. So yes, that's a very smart way to go. To answer your question about um, my favorite short that I did not work on, and I don't have one particular, but my, one of my favorite cartoon series were the shorts in the Jay Ward cartoons called Fractured Fairy Tales. Yeah, of course. And again, they were great when I was a kid. I tell you, I didn't know half of those jokes. <laughs> you watch them now, they were so clever. Yeah. And, and I did get to know many of the actors who worked on those, the Hans Conrads and the um, uh, June Foray and all those wonderful actors who did those, the Dawes Butlers who did all those cartoons. Just absolutely stunning. Exactly. And the little witch would close the book at the end. That's right. And the book would close on her and the little wand would fall to the ground. I love Did you... I think my favorite short of all time... Uh, and I think maybe it won an Academy Award too. Was uh, the dot in the line? Do you remember that one? I, I think I Chuck Jones directed it, and it was a short story about a line who falls in love with a dot. But the dot is uh, is basically obsessed with the squiggle because the squiggle is basically like a like a rock band. I love this. And so the line uh, essentially through focus uh wins her over was there there was no dialogue in them was there there was a there was narration okay there was narration but there was no dialogue in it but it's one of the most beautiful stories uh i have to watch it i'll have to find it it's from it's, it's in the 60s okay. i think in the mid mid 60s yeah, oh. yeah it's on youtube nice. the line, a romance, the line. A romance and lower mathematics I love and there's that. all these it's so beautiful there's all these math jokes does it make it. musical notes is there a point where it becomes musical notes? Maybe for like a second. Right. But he's... Yeah, anyway, you sh- everyone should watch The Dot in the Line. Okay. It'll... I, I think it'll... It, it's, it, the story's so beautiful, you, you might get like... I'm so glad to hear yeah. about that. Yeah, I it's love really being good. I love to new animation. Yeah, so I would, I, would, uh, I, w- I would recommend that. Love it. Well, this is, I think, about... All, this is... Yeah. Oh, my God. We talked for an hour and a half. Oh, dear. <gasps> Are we in trouble? No, not Somebody at all. Yell at us? I just, it, just, it feels like we've been here for 15 minutes. I know. But this I love catching joy. up with you. Me, too. I miss you. And, I, and I'm so glad that I ran into you at New York Comic Con and said, let's... I know it. Do this. With oh, your... you were there for Archer, right? No, uh, not no. Archer. Um, uh, I wish. I love that no, series. No, you were there for... What were you I there for? I was there for Firefly Online. Okay. And for... We were promoting um, one of the movies... Ooh, I forget which movie it was that was just coming out. One of the Justice League movies or Batman movies or something. I forget what was coming out then. I I make about three movies a year, including all the other series that I do. And I literally get in the car some days and don't know where I'm going. I'm like, I forget. I, <laughs> when I got in the car, I remember where I was driving. Is it Nickelodeon or is it... Is it over going? here? So I, I, I'm blessed that I have so many series that I'm working on and so many projects but to say what I was promoting at that particular event I forget <laughs> but, but I just want to say that I was seeing your face on banners in New York City <laughs> <coughs> yeah, that was even weird for me that was a beautiful thing you take some pictures I hope it was I, I took a couple pictures uh, because my mom was like my mom wanted if my, if my mom had her way I would have taken a picture of every banner and I'm like mom I just I took two they all look the same she's very but proud she just wanted and she to, should be congratulations oh, to you, you on your success I'm happy I appreciate for you. it but I really I, I really hope that people go and look up all of your credits because I think they'll be like holy shit oh my god she did that I mean just uh, thank you so much my for making I mean so many people who listen to the show like an entire but multiple generations of people were inspired grew up with uh, you know were carried through their lives by stuff that you 
helped create. Thank so I hope you, you understand. I hope I warp them too much. <laughs> in the best way possible. <laughs> maybe, maybe. So thank you, Andrea Romano. It's my pleasure. And Thanks I, for having me. I adore me. you. And uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. Thank you. Enjoy your burrito. Enjoy your burrito. Enjoy your burrito. <laughs> They're doing the three reads on the sign-off. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yeah, Katie, you just pick whichever one you want to use. <laughs> All right. The end. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar. Like a liar. And if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal, or you love to hop in the Wayback Machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes, you should tune in to our podcast, Morbid. Follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to episodes early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.